I wonder if it were just you and I talking. We were just having a little chat. And I ask you how you really felt about Christmas, perhaps the Christmas that was just yesterday, or Christmas in general. I wonder, how would you reply? Do you have that Hallmark movie feeling? Or does it come up a little short of that? Do you ever feel like Christmas is a short burst of light that breaks up the darkness of winter? It's a most welcome but a very brief interruption into things. But it lasts so, so short-lived. And then we just find ourselves back into the midst of the dark and cold of January. Christmas, uh, you know, the world uh, even recognizes it's supposed to be a time of hope. Right? But how quickly that hope fades once the day has passed and the presents are opened and all of a sudden we're left without hope. But see, this is where Christianity truly has something to offer, and that is hope. There is hope every day of the year because of the gospel. So that's what, what, I, what I would like us to look at this morning. In the passage before us this morning, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah gave several titles for the Lord Jesus. And each one of these titles, of course, would be worth our time and our exploration. For instance, we see in verse 6, Isaiah refers to Jesus as wonderful counselor, uh, then mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And each one of those titles really are, are, are more than worth our time and attention. But I just want to focus this morning on one particular title, and that is Jesus as Wonderful Counselor. And there's three things out of the text that I would like to highlight this morning. Now, this isn't going to be uh, uh, something real in-depth. It's probably a little bit lighter than what we're used to, but there's a reason for that, as I'll explain as we go along. So three things from the text that I'd just like to point out for us this morning. The first one is the expectation of his birth. The expectation of his birth. In verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah paints a pretty bleak picture. He describes the mood. He describes the tone that prevailed at the time in which he wrote these words. Isaiah paints a picture of dark days and days without comfort. They were not exactly days filled with Christmas cheer or Christmas hope. And I think it would be helpful for us if we would just step back a little bit and think about the picture that Isaiah is painting here. When is the best time to see the light? Or when is it that we most desire the light? When is it that we most desire warmth? Well, it's no secret we desire the light in the midst of the darkness, and we desire the warmth in the darkness as well. We can't wait for the sun to come up. We can't wait for the warmth that the sun brings. You know, many people suffer from what is, uh, the acronym is SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, and I, I'm assuming it's real for some people. You know, the, the long, dark days of winter uh, begins to affect their mood, and they uh, experience discouragement and maybe even sometimes depression. Well, there's another kind of SAD that affects each one of us. You know what it is? It's sin-affective 
disorder. And that sin that affects each one of us also brings darkness and gloom and robs us of comfort and robs us of hope in this world that we just temporarily call home. But here's what I want you to see. It, it, just try and put yourself in, 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 in this day and time. He, Isaiah describes it as a time of gloom and darkness. So just kind of try and put yourself in, in that setting. But all of a sudden what happens here? God speaks words of hope and comfort in the midst of the gloom and in the midst of the cold and in the midst of these times of a lack of comfort. He understood that he wasn't speaking to a world that was characterized by Disneyland. You know, I think Disneyland likes to build themselves as the happiest place on earth. I got news for Disneyland. The happiest place will never be found on earth. That's just a figment of some modern day marketing, amen? Now we need to ask ourselves why the people to whom Isaiah originally wrote lived in a world that was characterized by such gloom and darkness. In other words, why were they suffering? Well, they were suffering because they had rejected God. Why do people suffer today? Why does this world suffer today? Because we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What happened? Adam and Eve, they rejected God. They rejected God's law. They disobeyed. And hence, the world entered into suffering. They suffered because... Listen, if this doesn't describe our day and age, I don't know what does. They suffered because they thought they knew better than God. They thought they knew the right way to go. They thought that they knew the right thing to do. And in essence, they had set themselves up as their own judge. They have set themselves up as their own standard of right and wrong. Inevitably, it's a failure. And that's what was happening here with the people in Isaiah's day. They suffered because they went their own way. And whenever we go our own way, whenever we forsake God's way, we forsake the way of living that God intends for us to live. But here's the absolutely amazing thing. God speaks these words to the very people whom had rejected him. And he comes to them and he says, look, I know it's gloom and darkness, but I'm going to do something about your gloom and your darkness. Now, if we could just think about that for a few moments, just meditate on that wonderful truth, that tells us exactly what God is like. We are the ones who have made a royal hash of everything. We are the ones who have messed everything up. But yet God says, you know what? I'm going to help you out. And he spoke these words of comfort to the people of Isaiah's day. He says, I'm going to solve your problem. And what was the solution to the problem? Well, it wasn't a program. It wasn't some political initiative. It was some scheme cooked up by some government someplace. No, the solution to the problem was going to be a baby. It was going to be Jesus, the Son of God. And that's incredible, isn't it? Isaiah tells the people that a baby will be born who will grow and he will take the weight of government capably upon his shoulders. Isn't our world crying out for someone who's capable of governing something? Well, he, uh, he has come. And what do, we, what do we learn from those who come to Christ, who engage with Christ, who begin to obey Christ and live for Christ? Well, all of a sudden, you know what? 
they find out that he is indeed a wonderful counselor. That he is indeed more than what they've heard about him. If we can say it this way, he's more than some people have cracked him up to be. He fulfills every expectation. He surpasses our wildest dreams. And this is what Isaiah was trying to show the people. Now notice the first word of verse 6 in our passage. It's a small word, for. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. And that little word for there lets us know that the light that the light that overcomes the gloom and the darkness is a direct result of this baby to be born. Say, so what, what would have happened if Jesus had never been born? We'd still be in this mess. We'd be in the gloom and the darkness and the cold. That's where we would be. This light would have, by the way, this light would affect more than just those to whom these words were addressed. They would affect more than just uh, his parents and those living in that day. No, they would uh, uh, affect everyone that would ever live. It would affect all those who walked in gloom and darkness. Look at verse 1 again. But there will be no gloom. Whoa. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What is happening here? What's Isaiah describing? Well, let's use a contemporary event. This year, most of the world, if not all the world, watched in horror and disbelief at the rapid collapse of Afghanistan at the hands of the Taliban. The Taliban swept through the country once the U.S. and the U.K. and Australian forces withdrew. And those people are left there, what, without hope. It's a nation filled with gloom and darkness. Well, that's the situation of the people that Isaiah was writing to. The communities of Zebulun and Naphtali had already been plundered by a group far worse than the Taliban. It was the Assyrians. Go read about the Assyrians. There's never been people like them known for their cruelty. Their homes of the people had been destroyed. Many of them had been taken, taken captive and now they were in slavery. At the time that Isaiah wrote this, the, the nation of Israel was a divided country. In one half of the country had already experienced judgment. So imagine living in the other half of the country, knowing what has happened to your counterparts. Just, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're living in absolute terror and fear, wondering when will you be invaded? When will your life as you know it come to an end? What a, what a horrible way to live. But Isaiah says that their situation was about to change. Look again at verses 2 through 4. The people, now keep in mind here, notice, how, notice the tense of what Isaiah says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a lane of deep darkness on them light has shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So can you imagine the sense of relief reading these words? You've been living under fear of invasion. 
and the horrors that would come with that. And for the first time in their lives, these people had a real hope. And this hope began to transform their hopeless situation. Their long national nightmare was coming to an end. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. <coughs> you know what he's saying here? You don't need your battle gear anymore. You don't need the uniform of a soldier. You can take them off. You can roll them up. You can throw them in the fire. The message of Isaiah is that the war is over. Now, those of you who know me know that I, I do like to listen to Christmas music. But I abominate modern Christmas music. I, I, you know, if I hear Mariah Carey again, I'm going <laughs> to stick a needle in my eye. You know. Uh, and uh, this won't surprise many of you. I, I really like Christmas music from the 1940s and 50s. Yeah. But occasionally, if I'm riding in a car with Sherry and she's got that channel on that plays that awful modern Christmas music, there, there's a song that comes on, and actually it was written by John Lennon of the Beatles. You say, is that contemporary? Well, if you're my age, it's kind of. And John Lennon wrote a song that's uh, titled, So This Is Christmas. So this is Christmas. So listen to the lyrics. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? Another year over, and a new one just begun. And so this is Christmas, I hope you have fun. The near and the dear one, the old and the young. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. Now, you see it's starting to break down already, don't you? Now, the last verse of Lennon's song goes like this. And this is kind of strange, I think, to put into a Christmas song, but it reflected the hope that he had. So the last verse goes like this. War is over if you want it. War is over now. You talk about the last verse of a song falling flat. There's no truth in those words, is there? War is not over. War continues to rage. Now here's the danger. If we're not careful, we hear the words of John Lennon, who also wrote, Imagine There's No Heaven. He was so, anti, he was so godless, it's not even funny. But if we're not careful, we hear words like that, and we hear them repeatedly during Christmas time. And we know they're just flat out not true. If we're not careful, then we come and we read the scriptures and we see these predictions that God gives us that, hey, better days are coming, better days are here. The gloom has been lifted. If we're, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll look at these words of Isaiah, we'll be kind of jaded as we look at them. So we have to ask, what was the basis for Isaiah's words? Well, the basis for his words is a simple three-letter word that each one of us, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, use multiple times each day. It's a little word, for. We've looked at it briefly before, but look at verse 6. For, to us a child is born. For, to us a son is given. Again, that little word, for, is a link to the child who was to be born. And it was clear from Isaiah's description that this, change, that this child that was to come was going to bring a radical change to those who turned from their sin and turned to God and begin to obey his word. What is the problem with the world that we live in? What is the root cause of all of our problems? 
It is our fractured relationship with God. And apart from Christ, the Bible describes us as the enemies of God. So our hope, our peace, can only be achieved by turning to Christ. Now, I hope you notice that as, we read, as we've read verses 9, 1 through 7, that uh, it's anticipating the time when the child is born, the son is given, who will be the wonderful counselor. But then in verse 6, his birth is written about in the past tense. Isaiah writes about it as it has already happened. But it hadn't happened at that point, had it? Say, well, what do we make of this? Well, one commentator says, for the people of Isaiah's day, the future is written as something which has already happened. For men like Isaiah cast themselves forward in time and then look back on the mighty acts of God saying to us, look forward to it. It is certain he has already done it. You see what Isaiah is saying here? Isaiah is looking forward in time, as it were, and predicting that this is going to happen, and this is going to be the results. That's the basis of Christian hope. Isaiah did not doubt that what God had said would come true. And that is the basis for our hope as Christians. You know, Christian hope isn't wishful thinking. It's not whistling in the dark. It's based upon the reality of what God has said. God is present at all points at all times. If he says it will happen, guess what? It is literally already done. Do you get that? If God has said that it is going to happen, it is already done. That's what Isaiah wanted them to see. So, one of the things that uh, we're planning for the new year, excuse me, <coughs> is a very brief outreach study that's created by uh, Rico Tice. I don't know if you're familiar with Rico Tice, but he, he was a successor to John Stott at All Souls Church in England, in London. And uh, Rico Tice is probably... Well, well known for that, obviously, but he also is the creator of uh, Christianity Explored and then uh, some other smaller studies, one of which we're going to do starting in January. It's called Hope, Hope Explored, and it's going to be on three successive Monday nights beginning January the 17th, and we've already begun to publicize it here in the neighborhood. And let me ask you to do this. It would be beneficial if many of you would plan to attend. Okay? It would be a real encouragement to me for one thing. But it would also benefit you because you would gain another tool for your tool belt or resource for you in order to share the gospel with others, much like the Tell the Truth training. So let, let me encourage you to begin praying about that and begin to make plans to attend. It, it will start Monday, January uh, 17th, and it's, it's very short. It's three weeks long, and uh, I think it'd be very helpful for you to be a part. And let me say this. I've said this many times before, but I truly believe this. God gives opportunities for evangelism to those who prepare themselves to take advantage of opportunities for evangelism. You know, we can moan and groan and complain that, well, we never have the chance to share the gospel with anyone. Well, I doubt that's really true, but there's a, there's a, a very 
real reality that if we don't prepare ourselves to take advantage of whatever opportunities God gives us, we certainly won't take advantage of them. So this would be just another way. Say, what are you going to do if nobody from the neighborhood comes? We're going to plug right, a, right ahead uh, along. See, our obedience as a church can never be based upon their reactions. Right? So we're just going to plug right along. And then we'll run it again, and we'll run it again, and we'll run it again. See? Here's how Rico Tice, the creator of Hope Explored, defines this hope worth having. And I absolutely love this. He says, it's a joyful expectation of the future based on true events in the past that changes everything about the present. Isn't that glorious? It's a joyful expectation of the future, which is assured, based on true events in the past, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that changes everything about the present. Has, it changed, has the gospel changed your present? Has the gospel, let me put it this way, is the gospel making a difference in your life right now? If not, why not? It's not the gospel's fault. Right? That's the kind of hope that Isaiah was trying to give to the people that were living in darkness and dread. Again, as the commentator said, looking forward to it, it is certain he has already done it. In other words, you know, uh, I read this week where many of the large mainline denominations were canceling their church service, their Christmas services. To which I said, good. They have nothing to offer. But we do. We have a true and certain hope to offer them, to offer people. Don't you think that now going into what our second year plus of COVID, people are desperate for some certainty and for some hope? Absolutely they are. So let's meet them at the place of their greatest need and show them the kind of hope that can be theirs, the certainty of hope that can be theirs through the gospel. Again, a promise act of God is as good as done. So we look back through the centuries to see that every detail of Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. And we can show that to people. These are verifiable facts. This is history. We can give them hope through the reality of the gospel. Second, his title explained. His title explained. Don't you find that life can be absolutely maddening at times? Utterly perplexing at times? And isn't it true that in the world that we live in today, there is a marked, distinct, a huge amount of scarcity when it comes to wisdom for living? Oh, we live in a world of talking heads and pundits and gurus and self-proclaimed experts. None of which makes things better. What people need is a wisdom that's proven, trustworthy, reliable, and works. Isn't that the gospel? That's the gospel. So if I were to ask you, and this would be a good question to ask an unsaved family member or friend, or maybe to ask yourself, 
Who do you trust as your counselor for life? Who do you trust as your counselor for life? Somebody you found on the internet? Some book you picked up in a self-help portion of the bookstore? Well, nobody goes to bookstores anymore, so I guess you found it on Amazon. So what we want to do through Hope Explored is simply to introduce others to Jesus and the wisdom that he possesses for life. The whole goal of this is to get people talking and to let them know that, hey, we're not afraid of your questions. We may not have all the answers, but we're not afraid of the questions. And we're more than willing to discuss these things with you. We want people to come to us and ask any and all questions that they have. To, and, and hopefully we want people to come and take a look at the evidence for themselves. You know, we're not trying to convince them of anything. Now, I'm probably the only guy in the room that remembers this, but it used to be a show called Dragnet. Sergeant uh, something Friday, I, f I forget his name, but Joe Friday, Sergeant Joe Friday. And he would always interview a witness and he would say, just the facts, just the facts, ma'am. That's all we want to show people, just the facts. We're not here to give them our opinion. We're not here to do anything like that. Just show them the facts of the gospel. So as we close here this morning, I want to give five um, examples or illustrations or demonstrations of, the, of Jesus living up to his title as Wonderful Counselor, okay? So that'd be point number three, if you care, his counsel experience. The first example is recorded in Luke chapter 2. Now in Luke chapter 2, we need to look beyond the manger, we need to look beyond the baby in the manger because, as I've said a couple of times this morning, if we get fixated on the baby in the manger, we just uh, become mired in sentimentalism and uh, it doesn't really do us much good. So we look beyond that and we look to when Jesus was 12 years old. And so here's Jesus at 12 years old. He's a, he's a real flesh and blood human being. It's interesting. He, he obviously knew what it was like to be 12 but he was, without a doubt, different and distinct from every other 12-year-old who ever lived. You say, well, how do we know this? Well, if you, if you perhaps remember the story where uh, he got left behind, right? Not the Kirk Cameron kind of left behind, but, you know, <laughs> he, he got left behind. And uh, his parents finally missed him. And... Uh, now, if I'd, been, if I'd been today, he'd had social services called on him. I'd say, you know, but, you know. Uh, they missed him, and they go back, and they look for him, and they finally found him in the temple. And verse 46 says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, Luke is not saying here, well, Jesus was here, you know, answering Old Testament quiz questions. It's not like, you know, this Pharisee was saying, hey, can you answer this? Or, hey, I bet I can stump you on this. No, what Luke is saying here is that Jesus was holding court with these religious teachers, with these religious leaders. In other words, Jesus was saying to him, let me help you guys understand what you think you know. But in reality, you don't know it at all. So let me show you what my father meant. Let me show you how to apply it to your life. That's what he was doing. He was able to explain God's word and apply it to life. The second example is in Mark chapter 1. Here, Jesus is a fully grown man. He's probably in his early 30s by then. In verses 21 and 22, we read this. And they went into Capernaum, 
And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So in this case, those who heard him teach instinctively knew that there was something different about him. He was far different than all the other religious teachers of the day. And and when he spoke, his words hit them with tremendous force and they were communicated with crystal clear clarity and relevance. That's why they were astonished. They, they felt his authority resonate through their minds and their lives. And guess what? That's why you and I and everyone around us need to make the time in order to listen to Jesus today. And how do we do that? Well, we do that in his word. We do that in the scriptures. That's how we experience the same life-changing truth. Listen, we didn't, we didn't have to live 2,000 years ago and be sitting in the temple or in the synagogue to hear Jesus change our lives through his words. No, we just pick up his word and we read his word and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us and to change us through his word. And it is just as powerful today as it was back then. Do you believe that? Example three is in John chapter four. You know the the encounter of Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman at the well. So we're going to pick it up right after that in verse 39 and 42 of John chapter 4. This is really fascinating here. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What is the woman's testimony? He told me all that I ever did. And that wasn't all good news, was it? Amen. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Now, here's what I want you to see first of all. Her testimony piqued their interest. Don't ever think that you don't have anything to say for Christ. Say, yeah, but I don't have the checkered past that she did. That's okay. Don't underestimate your testimony for Christ. Now, we'll just pick it up. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of, what's it say? His word. They said to the woman, (laughs) I love this, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. They weren't dissing her. And they were just stating the fact. Hey, you piqued our interest. You got the ball rolling But it's not just because of what you said that we believed. You know why we believed? We listened to him. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now here's what I want you to see in this encounter. Do we have have any written record of Jesus performing some crazy miracle to convince them that he was the Savior of the world? Huh? Do we? No. No. What, what do we have? They listen to him. So what do we want to help people do? Listen to Christ. Okay. That's what we do through Hope Explored. They began to believe when they took the time to listen to Jesus. If we can just convince people to listen to Jesus. Don't be afraid to say, don't take my word for it. <laughs> See what Jesus has to say. And so what is described here in John chapter 4 is this incredibly exciting moment when unbelievers move from unbelief to belief. When they go from being unsaved to being redeemed. 
We have this exciting moment here. This is what's going on here. They, these people moved from knowing someone who knew Jesus to knowing Jesus themselves. And that's all we're trying to do, right? We're not trying to make converts for ourselves. We're trying to convert them to Christ. Example four is in John 6. And really we see Jesus as a wonderful counselor here in a pretty painful time. We'll pick it up as Jesus finishing a teaching session, which anybody who's ever taught or preached at all knows all too well. It went over like a lead balloon. Okay. So look at verses 60, 66 and 69 if you want to in John chapter 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Isn't it interesting here? The Bible is so crystal clear. And the Bible gives us the unvarnished truth about the crowds around Jesus. They just began to thin out. And most of us, I dare say, know someone who at one time followed Christ but when things got tough, when the demands seemed to be unreasonable, they walked away. There are, let's, let's be honest, there are things that are far beyond our ability to comprehend that Jesus says at times. So we need to ask ourselves, what will we do when we can't make Jesus conform to who we think he is or who we want him to be? Hey, there's a lot of people that would follow a Jesus of their own making, Right? As a matter of fact, we have a lot of people that is following a Jesus of their own making. See? So Jesus asked his, own, his 12 disciples, if, hey, you guys want to bail? And though it was tough to go against the crowd, because it's always tough to go against the crowd, what did Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You. And you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now notice, you have the words of eternal life. That speaks to a desire that every human being has. Everybody wants to go to heaven? Nobody wants to die, right? Uh, I don't know if I'm saying this guy, last, guy's last name right, so... Chalk it up to my ignorance, if you want to. Jeff Bezos, Bezos? How's it, Joey? Bezos. Bezos, see, I told you. One th I don't know how to pronounce his name, but one thing I know, he loaded. He got a lot of money. You know, he just went into space here a few months ago. Well, something else that uh, he is investing his money in He's investing his money into a uh, high-tech startup in Silicon Valley where he has hired some of the top genetic scientists in all the world to plumb the secrets of eternal life. Now think about this. He's not spending his money to make more money. He's spending his money to give him more time, I guess, to spend his money. Intuitively, he knows I'm a billionaire, but when I die, it's not going to help me one iota. 
See, people are concerned about eternal life. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And think about that. If these highly intelligent men and highly shrewd businessmen are willing to make this kind of investment to someday achieve eternal life, don't you think that the average Joe or Josephine out here is willing to give us three hours of time over three weeks so we can show them this is how you can have eternal life? See? Again, it's, it's, it's touching a common need that we all have. Example five is in John 7. Now this it records the comment of the Roman soldiers who had no interest in Jesus other than having to arrest him. John chapter 7, verses 43 through 46. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him, why, didn't, why did you not bring him? Now I wonder, is this an acceptable answer? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this, man. You're, you're a soldier. I don't care how he speaks. You're supposed to bring him in here. Ah, you don't understand. No one has ever spoke like this man. What is this? This is Jesus, the wonderful counselor. I wanted all of us to see these reactions to the wonderful counsel of Jesus because he's still the wonderful counselor today. He alone is far wiser than every teacher and counselor and politician and guru and self-help expert. You can line them up around the world and their wisdom doesn't begin to compare with his. He and he alone speaks with authority. He's completely unlike all of the so-called pundits today. He and he alone knows everything about us, yet offers us living water that will satisfy us forever. And he and he alone has the words of eternal life in a world filled with religious confusion and pluralism. No one ever spoke like him, and still today, no one could ever speak like he does. So what are we going to do in the new year? We want to introduce people to the one in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.